You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Yahweh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please, Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, 
because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares Yahweh, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before Yahweh. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that Yahweh has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of Yahweh, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for Yahweh is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from the following of Yahweh. Yahweh will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites, who lived in that hill country, came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Let the bodies hit the floor. 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 Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh me oh my. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 630 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, June 1st, 2023. That was another 
account from the Old Testament that you will never see turn into a Phil Vischer Veggie Tales experience for young children. Uh, you just won't. Uh, you just won't. Uh, unless I've missed it. Uh, maybe I'm giving Phil Vischer too little credit. Maybe I'm giving the VeggieTales crowd too little credit, but I just I just don't see it happening. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know how you would portray that. How, how would you do that? Right? Showing the 12 spies who come out of Canaan after spying out the land and giving their report and God mulling over initially just wiping out the whole people of Israel and then relenting of that plan, but declaring basically that Israel is going to be judged just as they said. Okay, you said it would be better for you to go back to Egypt than to die in the wilderness. You're going to die in the wilderness. You have already pronounced judgment on yourself. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, and your bodies are going to fall dead. Your dead bodies are going to fall in the wilderness for 40 years until not a single man who saw the signs and the wonders that I performed in bringing you out of Egypt, bringing you to this point, is alive. All of you are going to be gone. And then I will give the land to your children, the next generation. I will give this land that you said would see your children being preyed upon. I will give those very children the land that you said would just swallow them up. And then you've got this very dramatic outcome for the 10 spies who said, no, no, we can't. We can't take it. We cannot take this land. And these guys are not randomly chosen by lot. They are leaders of the tribes of Israel, the 10 who delivered a bad report and stirred up the people of Israel to the point where they were going to elect new leaders. Here's democracy for you. They were going to elect new leaders and go back to Egypt, see if the Egyptians would take them back. These 10 leaders of the tribes who had gone in as spies, God strikes with plague and they die. I would say in much shorter fashion than the rest of the men of the household of Israel, the people of Israel, the congregation of Israel. And the two who are spared the wrath of God are the two who delivered a good report, who are very much upset. They are very vexed. They tear their clothes when they hear what the assembled congregation of Israel is talking about, what they're saying. They are vexed and they tear their clothes. And what is the congregation of Israel's idea of justice in that moment? They're talking about stoning Joshua and Caleb for what? What crime have they committed? Again, here's democracy for you. This often happens in democracies, pure democracies, which it looked like Israel was just right on the verge of becoming, except for divine intervention. In a pure democracy, the will of the people, vox populi, can just decide arbitrarily, these folks over here need to go. And if 51% say, that's it, it's lights out for you, we have grown tired of the nuisance alarms and 
the things you've been telling us. We don't want to hear it anymore. Well, then that's what it is. But God has a very different idea of what he's going to do with Joshua and Caleb. Instead of Joshua and Caleb being stoned by the people for upsetting them, right? They were triggered. The people of Israel were triggered by the account of these two spies. God was pleased and said, actually, I'm going to make an exception. All of the other men who saw the signs and wonders I performed in bringing this people out of Egypt and to this point, all of the other men are going to die in the wilderness. These two, Joshua and Caleb, I will bring into the land and their descendants will possess the land. So pretty much the exact opposite of what a pure democracy was about to enact in the way of justice or injustice, actually more to the point, is what God decided. And the exact opposite, lest we get the chronology out of sequence here, the exact opposite of what would please God is what the democracy was going to choose. Note here that this is not just a question of, humanly speaking, an honest assessment of the situation, what do we have and what does the enemy have? No, no. When God has given a command, when he has made a promise, when he has shown his mighty power and his righteousness and his faithfulness to this point, what's actually really at root being debated is the goodness and power and authority of God himself. It's not just a question of pragmatism and what would be prudent and what would be good business and what would be responsible leadership. It's not just a question of, hey, we have some disagreement over the best course of action moving forward, humanly speaking, to suppose a purely secular political conflict here is to do the very thing that the congregation of Israel is doing here. Notice it's not the contention directly explicitly stated. It's a lie by omission that they don't even mention what God has commanded, what God has promised, what God has done. It's a lie by omission, which is to say by their excluding any mention, they're making a statement that none of that is important. None of it is relevant. None of it is even a factor in their considerations. It does not matter, which is in its way, if you take it as a double negative, it's a way of saying that once again, the authority of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, as has been displayed throughout to this point, is not great and not good and not worth living for and speaking for and committing to. And yet, if we take this passage, we take this whole business of the 12 spies, which I think is chock full of lessons, important lessons that we need to apply to our current political situation in the United States of America, in the American church, in the year 2023, the year of our Lord, 2023 AD, Anno Domini. If we take this and apply it to our situation, I think we have to look differently at the prudential type, pragmatic type decisions that are so often made by Christians in America. The prudential, pragmatic arguments that are offered up have to 
hit differently than they have been. The big question is, what has God commanded? And what is the character of God? And what has he demonstrated in his word? And do we believe that? What has he called us to? And are we committed to that? Are we believers? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the big idea here is not, what do we do, first and foremost, but upstream of what do we do? What do we believe? What we believe invariably expresses itself, manifests itself in what we do. But where that relates to our faith in God, what are we demonstrating about what we believe, even just by what we leave out, what we omit? You know, this is one of the things that bothers me about veggie tales and so much of, not all, but so much of the mainstream corporate Christian culture in America today. More for what is left out than for what is put in, there is an implicit claim, an unspoken claim, but an implicit claim by omission that how God has acted in relation to his people and the nations in many places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is not suitable for work. It's NSFW. It's not suitable for children to view or listen to or understand or think about or meditate on. And it's not suitable for adults either, for that matter, because what does the promise of God indicate when we read train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. What does that portend for adults who were raised as children with a very tame, very sanitized, in some sense, very neutered portrayal of the whole counsel of God? They keep on being childish in their thinking. They keep on being immature and being children. If they were raised on a very malnourished view of the Old Testament and who God has always been, not that he was different in the Old Testament and then he changed his mind. And not even in this passage, you see a little bit of what some would say, ah, oh, hey, he's changing his mind here. He was going to destroy all of the people of Israel. And then Moses spoke up for them and he changed his mind. It's a bit more complicated than that. I'm not saying... That's completely beyond the pale because that's what the text reveals. But what's behind it, right? Is there some measure of God drawing these conclusions out of Moses and Joshua and Caleb and us even to the present? Drawing these conclusions out through a kind of negative arguing the opposite. Almost like satire. Almost. Kind of. Not quite, but but almost. Hey, I'm going to do this thing. Oh, but Lord, if you do that, then the nations who've heard of your fame will say such and such. And all the while, God knows that, right? God knows that. And he's like, yeah, good point. (laughs) Good point. The big question isn't, did God realize or remember? It's, did Moses and Joshua and Caleb realize and remember? Do we realize and remember? that God was bringing this people out for his possession to make his name great among the nations, to demonstrate his power among the nations, do we realize that? Do we recognize that? Do we remember that? You have Moses interceding for the people, but his argument is not, 
they don't deserve it. <laughs> it's it's not, oh, but they're actually really good people at heart and you just don't understand that they had really good intentions and they were just thinking about their children. And, you know, it's, it is kind of hard. You got to understand. And, you know, there are a lot of emotions. Emotions are running high right now, God. And, you know, just give me a minute. I'll try and work with them. No, no. No, that's not the argument made by Moses. No, no. Moses says, but God, the nations have heard of your fame and what you have declared. And that is the right response. That's the right reason to not give up on the church in America, for instance, or anywhere in in any country. Don't give up on the church. Imperfect as we are as Christians, if God has laid claim to us through the blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then for his namesake, out of obedience to him, out of reverence for him, trusting in his goodness, we're going to stay engaged. We're going to continue on appealing to the mercies of God, trusting in the providence of God, and serving the people of God. But that isn't to say that there isn't a need for corrective or discipline, or yes, even what happens in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, this is not only an Old Testament thing. I was just talking with my cousin, Micah Hirschberger, who recently moved, in recent weeks, moved to Greeley, Colorado. Very excited about that. Super cool. We went out for dinner at Fuzzy's Tacos, I think is what the full name is, something like that. But we went out for tacos last night and caught up on how the new job is going, how he's getting settled in, what his plans are, what he's hoping to work on next. He was trying to get some feedback and advice on how he's got his truck set up for work and all that good stuff. He's thinking about getting a different truck, yada, yada. But we were talking at a certain point about Ananias and Sapphira and, on the other hand, the people of Israel wandering in the desert, wandering in the desert for 40 years. And it occurred to me as I was reading this passage this morning, with that still fresh in my mind, the conversation with my cousin Micah last night, it occurred to me that Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament are proof positive that God's character is the same. Just like he strikes with plague the 10 spies who bring back this bad report, and they have corrupted and turned the whole congregation of Israel against Moses and against Aaron and against Joshua and against Caleb and against God himself, more importantly, most importantly, more to the point, God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead in the book of Acts because they are a corrupting influence on his people. God is jealous for his own glory, for his own namesake, and he is also protective of his people. And you say, well, but aren't Ananias and Sapphira his people? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? Maybe they are and maybe they aren't. And God knows I'm sure of it. But there again, what we find ourselves very, very quickly, very easily slipping right back into is... The earlier question, the more fundamental question, the more foundational question, is God good? Is God just? If we say, well, but aren't Ananias and Sapphira his people? Why did he strike them dead? We need to take care, so also with Numbers 14, that we're not allowing a creeping doubt to implant itself in our own minds, our own hearts, that God is not good if Ananias and Sapphira were his people, or he could have made them his people, and instead he strikes them dead. Or these 10 leaders of the people of Israel were his people, and instead of turning their hearts, he strikes them dead for all to see and for us to still be reading about. These are important and entirely relevant 
issues and questions and lessons that we need to grapple with today, here, now, in our context. Not because we are ancient Israel, not because we are the first century church or Ananias and Sapphira or these 10 or those two, but because God is God. And the character of his purposes, we're told in the word, is unchangeable. Not just that it doesn't change, it's unchangeable. The character of his promises and his purposes is unchangeable. And that's because his character is unchangeable. He's not growing into the role. He's not becoming God. He is God and always has been and always will be. What does Jesus say in the Gospels? Before Abraham was, I am. I am in Genesis. I am in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I am sent you. Jumping in to some current events, though. Hope Sloop, writing for DailyMail.com, tells of a story of a foot-long mastodon tooth found on a California beach that has gone missing after the discoverer thought it was driftwood. An Ice Age-era mastodon tooth has disappeared from a northern California beach after a woman took a picture of it and then promptly left it in the sand, mistaking it for driftwood. Jennifer Schka posted photos of the foot-long tooth that washed up at Aptos Creek in Santa Cruz to Facebook, which caught the attention of local paleontologists. Quote, she didn't know what it was, the importance of it. It looks like a piece of old firewood, said Wayne Thompson, an advisor for the local history museum. Quote, so she left it there. It's understandable, end quote. Now, what's curious about this, and part of the reason why it caught my attention, and I figured I would mention it on the podcast, is she thought it was driftwood. She thought it was an odd-looking piece of driftwood, but she thought it was driftwood. And imagine being in her shoes and then realizing <laughs> it was what? You know, so they go back, right? They go back, her and her, uh, I believe it's her husband. They go back and they couldn't find it. Her and her husband, they go back, they can't find this thing. And it probably washed back out to sea and then floated ashore somewhere else or something, right? Something happened. They misplaced where they actually saw it or forgot exactly where they were. But I bring it up because... It can be just like this when we're reading history or we're reading current events or we're having a conversation with somebody or we're reading the Bible that we see something and we think, oh, that's odd. That's strange. What a weird shape. What is this? We snap a picture or we make a mental note and we carry on. And only if we bring that to the attention of somebody who would know and we listen to them when they say, do you realize what you've got here? Only then will we potentially realize what we had passed over. And this is a, you know, maybe not life or death kind of a find that was underappreciated, missed out on. I would have loved, personally, I would have loved to have been in her shoes. I'm sure many of us would have picked this thing up, rinsed it off, taken it home, and then figured out what it was. My kids do this all the time. I should stop stopping them from doing it. Occasionally, we stop them from doing it. Not always. But take it home and then figure out what it is. 
And then if it's nothing, if it's worthless, if it's whatever, if it's just driftwood, throw it away. Even if it's just driftwood, it's like, yeah, that's a cool piece of driftwood. Bring it home. Clean it up. See what you can do with it. See if you can give it to somebody who can do something with it. As it is, doubtless there are paleontologists who would have loved to have gotten a hold of this, put it in a local museum, for instance, study it, check it out. It looks like it's in great, great condition from the picture. It looks like it is not a fossil. It looks like it is straight up a bone from not so very, very long ago. And again, as I've said before, I'm a young earth creationist. I am not an old earth. I'm not a gap theory. I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I'm certainly not a Darwinian. I look at the Genesis chronology with the genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so and lived for this long and then died. I look at all that and I say, ah, the earth is six to 10,000 years old, not millions and billions of years old. So yeah, this can definitely be a more recent <laughs> specimen than what uh, conventional mainstream secular scientists who, again, leave out any credit to God, they are making a statement by not factoring in God's word, which we have, and totally excluding the authority of scripture. But I don't do that. I say this is relatively recent. That's why it looks like it's in such good shape. Bring it home, clean it up, study it. Maybe we would find how that's the case, right? Maybe we would find that, hey, there's genetic material. That's been a thing, even with some dinosaur bones, actually, if you find red blood cells in a Tyrannosaurus bone, maybe it's not a fossil, actually, maybe it's a bone, just saying. But a very similar kind of weird story, different, but very similar, turned up in my searches yesterday for something I read about in a book I'm reading right now or listening to, Babylon, Mesopotamia, and the Birth of Civilization by Paul Krawaczyk. Iraqi transport minister claims first airport was built 7,000 years ago in Iraq by ancient Sumerians. The Sumerians settled in the historical region of Mesopotamia, now South Iraq, in 5500 to 4000 BC. Katie Forster published this piece in the independent.uk back in October of 2016. And I'll put a link in if you want to check it out. It's kind of a curiosity. It's a fun little story. But the long and short of it is I'm reading this book about Babylon and the author who is giving it, you know, in the way that would be palatable to modern historians and scientists who are secular. He's giving the chronology. He's doing the very Will Durant type thing where we're not going to take the Bible as credible or authoritative or inerrant or the word of God or inspired, but we will look at it. We will consider what's in it. And then we'll check to see if we can trust it. We're not expecting to be able to trust it, but we'll check to see if anything else, other sources, any other sources corroborate the testimony that we find in the Old Testament. And then we'll believe, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess that checks out. Well, as he is telling the back and forth story of ancient manuscripts and ancient tablets and archaeological finds and the historical record, plus also more contemporary, recent stories and history, including Saddam Hussein and the American-led invasion of Iraq 
with the whole war on terror business under George W. Bush, to after U.S.-led forces took Iraq, executed Saddam, you know, juxtaposing what we know from history, what we know from current events, what the modern sensibility or interest is in these places. And a passing mention was made in one chapter to how archaeologists and historians are utilizing spy satellites that America put up during the Cold War to watch the Soviets, make sure they weren't going to fire off nukes at us or what have you. Uh, Those spy satellites in more recent years, since the end of the first Cold War, have been repurposed and they've been trained on Mesopotamia, for instance. And what you can see from space is there were cities evenly spaced all throughout the region and there were a lot of buildings. There were a lot of signs of human civilization having developed here that maybe if you're on the ground, you don't see, right? You don't see it clearly when you're just walking around. You don't necessarily appreciate what this is. And then you zoom out and then, whoa, wait a second. You see that? You see that? You see this path here where people used to walk and it turned into something of a road? Do you see that? It looks like that used to be fields. You see that? That used to be a town or a village. Here's the outline of houses and temples and granaries and various other buildings. And so what did I do? I paused the book at a certain point as I'm listening to this part. And I thought to myself, it'd be really interesting to check this out. And maybe I should just jump on Google Earth sometime, zoom in on the region, see if I can see some of what's being described. But in my searching, I found this, this story from Katie Forster in The Independent, where you have an Iraqi transport minister claiming the first airport in the world was built 7,000 years ago in Iraq, what is modern-day Iraq, by the ancient Sumerians. And he claims, oh yeah, ancient Sumerians were traveling into space from here. And they discovered the planet Pluto. And you know what? Whether there's any, any, any validity to such a speculation, I don't think we'll know soon. We will someday know, I believe, Even as we are fully known by God, we will, when the perfect comes, which I believe is the second coming of Christ, when Christ returns or calls us home, we will know even as we are fully known. Right now we see through a glass dimly. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But this Iraqi transport minister says, oh yeah, there's all kinds of stories and there's evidence and et cetera, et cetera. And modern science says absolutely not because that totally conflicts with our view of what ancient life progressed like. They have a very evolutionary perspective and they would say all of the advances of civilization today put us at the very peak. And the people who lived thousands of years ago, they were much closer to the hunter-gatherers, primitive types. They didn't have all of this, any of this computer technology and they didn't have any of these automobiles or they didn't have electricity. They didn't have flight. I bring this up because for all we know, we today as moderns with our framework, with our perspective are like this gal on the beach in Northern California coming across a strange piece of driftwood and then 
snapping a picture and moving on. And unless somebody who actually does recognize that speaks up and says, ah, that's a mastodon tooth. Actually, you should go back and get that. Bring it in. We'll study it. Unless somebody who actually knows is like, ah, no, actually, actually, it might as well be driftwood for all the good it's doing to us because we missed it, because we put it into a framework that we were familiar with. And if we didn't have a category for mastodon teeth and what those look like, then we dismissed it. We left it. It's like, oh, that's interesting, but totally unimportant. The same thing can happen with archaeological finds and historical records in ancient Mesopotamia. The same thing can happen in our estimation of the biblical account of what happened with God bringing the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into the promised land out of slavery in Egypt. The same thing can happen as we're assessing our current circumstance, where we see all of these various reports and these rumblings of strange things happening And if we put all of the above into a framework that is godless, then we are going to underappreciate some of the warning signs and also some of the blessings that there are. Not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that the Iraqi transport minister was telling it true, but I am saying I don't think we should just totally rule out ancient accounts of fantastical things happening that we don't have a modern scientific explanation for. Our modern scientific framework in general is very limited. And just because there are people who do recognize a mastodon tooth on a beach, that doesn't mean that science generally recognizes every other oddity that we would find, that would wash up on a shore, that would turn up in satellite imagery. That's all I'm saying. Don't close the book on everything we find in ancient times from thousands of years ago being more true than embellishment. For instance, for another example, and I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode to the book in question, and I haven't finished it yet, so I hope to do something of a review, or maybe I'll just sprinkle in some references here and there as I continue on. But this book by Paul Krawakzek about Babylon, he talks briefly in one chapter about flood myths in Mesopotamia, and how some of the flood myths of the Sumerians and others are very similar to the account in Genesis of Noah's flood. And lo and behold, there is some evidence that if you dig down, there are older settlements, older developments of towns and cities and buildings that seem to have been buried in a pretty thick layer of mud. And that would seem to indicate to archaeologists who have found such things in Mesopotamia that there have been at least, at least significant regional floods, which that's what the conventional wisdom is. The conventional wisdom is, oh yeah, it was just a regional flood that really stuck with these peoples who survived it for a long, long time. Now, I don't know how you use that to explain away peoples from all over the world also having flood myths that are very similar. If they don't have a modern scientific trace to Mesopotamia or having come from Mesopotamia to whatever far-flung parts of the world that they ended up in, you know, I, don't, I don't know how you explain all of these flood myths as being just regional floods, except I suppose 
can have regional floods everywhere, but that's, that's not satisfactory. That's not to my way of thinking. You know, the conventional wisdom would be to say these other cultures inspired the Jews to write down their own version, right? They were just keeping up with the Joneses, these Hebrews, their own version of the flood myth in which their God is sending the flood for his reasons. And it all fits within the theological framework of ancient Israel. I don't buy that for a second. How about there was an actual global flood that all peoples still remember because it was passed down via oral tradition throughout generations. It was hugely important to the family's story that everybody on earth today came from Noah and his three sons who were saved with their wives and two of every kind of land animal and bird aboard the ark. This was hugely important to the family's story. And so wherever they spread out to, they took the story with them and then built up civilization again were fruitful and multiplied, just like God blessed them and told them to be, spread out, filled up the earth. But also, too, remember Babel. So you have this business with the Tower of Babel in Mesopotamia, where the command is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And what do they want to do? They want to all clump up in one big city and build a tower to the heavens as an act of hubris. What's that? right? What is that? Is that literally a skyscraper that's going to go all the way out into space? The boring explanation would be it's just a really tall structure, right? It's just a pyramid that's a little bit taller than what's normal. It was a ziggurat. It's just taller than all the other conventional buildings to that point. That's all. It was a metaphor, right? It was a symbol. Well, yes, it was, but not just. And what if, right? What if What's being described there is an early attempt at flight or space travel. And we suppose, we assume, we put everything into a framework that presupposes and assumes that we are the pinnacle of human civilization. This is a very self-serving, hubristic way to look at human history. We assume that and we put everything into that framework. And if it turned out that the Tower of Babel was something a bit more technologically advanced that then was forgotten. You know, destruction, devastation, disaster. God put a stop to that, just like Genesis tells us. And then people spread out because their language, their, their languages were confused. That's why God confused the languages, to spread them out. Nope, I said spread out. I don't want you guys to be able to understand each other. I'm not claiming that I know all of these things, but I am definitely claiming modern secular science that is godless, does not understand these things. I absolutely believe that. (laughs) How could they, right? How could they when they reject the authority of God's word? Speaking of adopting a rather godless view and what happens with science when you take a godless view, World War II horror bunker used for human experiments discovered in China. Report by Ben Whitehead at the Daily Wire. A bunker once used for experiments on humans by Japanese scientists has been partially unearthed in China, according to a report from Live Science. Dubbed the Horror Bunker, it was used by the infamous Unit 731 of Japan's Imperial Army from 1941 until 1945, when Japan surrendered in World War II. While the exact location had previously been unknown, archaeologists from the Heilongjiang Provincial Institute of Cultural Relics and Archaeology now believe it sits in the city of Anda in northeast China. 
The archaeologists who made the discovery said it, quote, highlights the ongoing legacy of Unit 731's atrocities and their impact on global efforts to prevent biological warfare, end quote. The bunker is U-shaped and measures 108 feet long and 67 feet wide with tunnels and interconnected rooms, according to Live Science. It's believed to have labs, barracks, and observation and dissection rooms, though the researchers have not yet entered the facility, the outlet notes. Researchers used drilling, excavation, and geophysical prospecting to discover the facility. According to the Independent, a circular room in the bunker may have been used as an observation site after the human subjects were infected with chemical agents or diseases. Unit 731 was formed in 1937 with the objective of promoting public health, according to the Atomic Heritage Foundation, but it would soon begin terrifying experiments on humans against their will. Some of those experiments reportedly included being injected with diseased animal blood, organ and limb removal, and testing of chemical weapons, grenades, and bacterial bombs. Researchers said the bunkers were used to prevent the spread of pathogens being tested. Now, let's just stop right there, and you can read the full report at The Daily Wire. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. If you do read the full article, or if you just happen to know the history here, when the physician who headed up Unit 731 was taken into American custody at the close of World War II, at the surrender of Japan, he was guilty of monstrous, monstrous crimes. Thousands of people were murdered by this unit in the name of science, in the name of supposedly advancing public health. But this lead physician, lead scientist for Unit 731 was pardoned by the United States of America, by our government, in exchange for handing over the research, which, to my way of thinking, is in some fashion almost as if we're saying it was worth it. Or it's almost as if the powers that be in the U.S. government decided it was worth it. We'll let it slide as long as you give us the findings. And this is why I was very distrustful from the beginning of the COVID pandemic when the Wuhan Institute of Virology and Dr. Fauci and the NIH and the NIAID said, no, no, this is definitely uh, bat soup or it's probably naturally occurring or it's probably somebody was eating some animal they shouldn't have. It was probably animal to human transmission. We don't know how, but it is definitely not the level four bio lab in Wuhan. <laughs> I, I was skeptical from the beginning because I thought, well, of course, if you guys were doing gain-of-function research, if you were actually maybe potentially possibly developing bioweapons so that you could supposedly protect us all from bioweapons, and it just so happened that on purpose or accidentally, some of your developments were released, unleashed, let loose on the world, of course you wouldn't want to admit to it. Of course you wouldn't want to own that. That hurts the reputation of the United States of America, that hurts the reputation of science, so-called. Of course you wouldn't want to advertise that. I bring this up because there's a lot of things that are kept from us supposedly for the public good, for the greater good, for the national security interests of the U.S. or our allies. There's a lot that's kept from us by science because we would have ethical 
problems that needed to be resolved. Because some of what is done is not, strictly speaking, either legal or moral and is actually in opposition to the laws of God and man. And this here, it's interesting and it's kind of odd to hear about archaeologists looking for this bunker from World War II. World War II is not that long ago. Archaeologists are looking for this bunker that they didn't know where it was. You know, how would it be if we found reports from thousands of years ago of something similar happening in Mesopotamia and we said, well, because we haven't found it, because archaeologists haven't found any evidence of that, we don't think that that really happened. We think that was just propaganda. That's exactly how it goes. And if you read about in the Bible, various things happening, if archaeologists, if modern scientists who are secular, who are godless, can't find evidence for it, they say, well, it didn't happen probably. We don't think that that actually happened because we don't have evidence that we can go out and verify. We don't do such things with regards to Unit 731 and World War II and the Imperial Japanese, in part because we have video evidence, we have photographic evidence, and now here, archaeologists go looking for something they expect to find. They expect that it does exist, and they find it. And my point in bringing this to your attention is at least twofold. One, don't trust the science because science is only as good as the people doing the science. The intentions on the front end, as advertised, might be to promote public health. And oh, by the way, the doctor who headed this thing up when he was pardoned by the US, he lived out the rest of his days as a physician doing medicine in Japan. How would you like to go to that guy to be your doctor? Uh, Don't go just trusting the science or the scientific consensus or what you're told is the scientific consensus or else these kinds of things will happen. They do happen when we just blindly trust the stated good intentions of the people doing the researches. A lot of evil can be excused in some people's minds if the good outweighs the bad that it took to develop your treatment plan or your defenses or your weapons, as the case may be. But I also mention this because going back to the biblical account in Numbers chapter 14, we should not suppose that difficult things being in the text or science today in the mainstream saying, oh, we don't think that happened. We don't think that existed. We don't think that was really the case. Doesn't mean that we then distrust the authority of God's word. Let God be true. God would know. God would know what he did. God would know what happened. I trust God more than I trust the so-called settled science. Or at least that's my goal, my intention. That's my commitment. That's what I want to do. That's what I aim to do. By God's grace, I'm going to keep on striving to do that very thing. In other news, Alexandra Olson with the Associated Press has a piece that has been republished by the Billings Gazette as of this morning. CEOs got smaller raises last year. It would still take a typical worker two lifetimes to make their annual pay. A closer look at the numbers. Now, there are a few things that can be said all at the same time about how much chief executives earn or how much they're compensated. Maybe that's a better way to put it. It's up for debate whether they earn what it is that they're being paid. But let's just say how much they're compensated. 
how much money is given to CEOs. Now, can I just suggest to you that it can be none of your damn business what a company pays their CEO. That's totally their business. And if they are more successful than their competitors paying a CEO a higher wage, well then it doesn't really matter what you or I feel about it. It's none of our business. That's one thing, right? That's one thought that I have. That's one feeling that I have. That's one conviction. That's one principle that I have. And I believe that that is true. And at the same time, I also believe that in the long run, in the interest of doing what is morally right, not just what is in the financial best interest of a corporation, what's in the best interests of your stock price based on who the CEO is and therefore who the face of your company is, who the spokesperson of your company is. In the long run, thinking more holistically and thinking in terms of what pleases God, what he would expect in the way of how the least of these are compensated and what the potential fruits of a good compensation package might be. I look at this, at some of these numbers, and there is a list, by the way, in this article. There's a list from the top paid, number one spot, which, if you didn't know, is Peter Kern with Expedia Group Incorporated. He makes, or made at least, in 2021, $296.2 million dollars. $296 million salary in one year Uh, from him all the way to the 100 spot with the CEO of Wells Fargo and company, Charles Scharf, at $21.4 million. Whether we're talking $21 million or $296 million, this is, in most cases, hundreds of times what the typical average median worker employed by these corporations makes. And I look at this and I read through it and I think on the one hand, well, if the company is doing better with the guy making $296 million than it was when the guy was making $296,000, or if you couldn't attract and hire top talent for $296,000, well, you know, Whatever, pay for the best, pay what it's going to take to get the very, very best. If somebody else is paying more than what you're prepared to pay, then they're arguably, probably going to get the best talent in that top spot. But on the other hand, right? On the other hand, (laughs) I think to myself, why is it, if this is all a factor of supply and demand, why do we have such a small supply of people who are qualified to be the CEOs of these major corporations? That's my big question. If this is all a factor of supply and demand, you can say all you want about free market principles and you can say all you want about how it's a company's private business, what they choose to pay their chief executives, their managers. If it's bad business, well, then they'll suffer for it. But I have a bigger question. I have a very different question than is it fair? That doesn't matter first and foremost whether you or I feel like it's fair. The question is, one, Is it effective from a human standpoint? If that's all there is, then your argument is invalid. But from a God-to-man standpoint, is it ethical? Is it moral? Is this in keeping with what God has commanded? That's the other question to ask. But 
set aside corporations and chief executives and tell me this, if it were the case that Wells Fargo thought that they could get a better CEO for $100,000 or $214,000 instead of $21.4 million, wouldn't they do that? And if this is, as I would assume, a factor of supply and demand, then why are we not churning out more CEO types? Honest question. If there's a particular skill set, there's a particular perspective or mindset or attitude or what have you that makes someone capable of being the CEO of a successful business, why is the ratio so skewed? And is it possible that this has something to do with the public education system as well? Is it possible that our public schools are doing what Frederick the Great intended for them to do, what the progressives were willing to at least take the risk that they would do in the interest of having a more progressive, a more liberal, a more secular, a more leftist America? Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, the whole making slaves out of 99 in 100 thing as it has been fine-tuned by the left in the U.S. for the past century or so, is the reason for this being so upside down. I mean, obviously, the Billings Gazette isn't making that suggestion. I'm making that suggestion. They're just reporting, hey, here's the top 100 people that, as I see it, you should hate, you should resent. Here are the top 100 companies that you should be writing angry letters to. Eat the rich. Redistribute the wealth. But this goes right back to the work of John Taylor Gatto and asking the question of why we have this education system that we do that does not cultivate good character. That's not its goal. In fact, its goal is to in some sense, abolish the idea that there's an objective standard of character. It's arbitrary, right? It's arbitrary and the government needs to be where your source of right and wrong comes from, where your source of true and false is, where your loyalty lies. That's the fixed standard is just do whatever your government tells you to do. As long as it's progressive, as long as it's liberal, as long as it promotes the agenda of the left which is secular, which is godless, which is hostile to the exclusive truth claims and morality claims of Christianity, of the Bible, more to the point of God. And so I look at this and I look at this list of, this list of 100 very wealthy CEOs of big corporations in America. And I look at this and I think supply and demand. More of us need to homeschool. More of us need to also change our rubric because that's the other piece of it is if you define success as being your type, which the very successful people who stand to benefit the most might well do, they might get to the very top and they say, well, if you want to be successful, you've got to do something generally speaking like I do, like I did 
in order to be one of the most successful people in the world. All the while, the cruel fact is, if we keep on doing what we have been doing, we will keep on getting what we have been getting, which is to say that the ratio sometimes is thousands to one. Thousands of employees at these companies for every one in terms of compensation. Now, it's not to say you can't have scenarios where one person is worth thousands because the thousands are all going to go off a cliff following each other, groupthink and all the rest, not creative problem solving, just doing whatever the first person to make a suggestion says, so long as it builds enough consensus. But what were we talking about in Numbers chapter 14? You have something like pure democracy trying to bubble up as the two spies deliver a good report, which is we can take this land, and the 10 spies say, no, no, we can't. They're too strong for us in Canaan. No mention whatsoever of God and his promises, his character, his goodness, his power, his might, his faithfulness. The 10 deliver a bad report, and then the whole congregation of Israel, as one man, is ready to stone Joshua and Caleb. In that context, Joshua and Caleb were arguably each worth hundreds of thousands of men in their own nation, in their own generation, because only Joshua and Caleb, apparently, were willing to say nonsense. It's not true. It doesn't matter if hundreds of thousands of you believe it. It's not true. What is true is what we saw with our very own eyes, what we have experienced personally, what we've all experienced What's true is that God has provided, God has protected, God has promised, and we believe God, and you should too. But see, therein lies another question. We find that this is a multi-layered problem, don't we? Another question lurking behind whether one man can be worth thousands is when do we determine that one man being the CEO of a company is worth thousands of others in his generation. To have some idea of the answer to that question, you have to look at what the spirit of the age is. You have to look at what the priorities of your time and place are. You have to look at what people value and why. And usually, if you trace that back, what you find underlying questions of what people value, what they respond to, what resonates, what inspires, what challenges, what intimidates, what scares, what tantalizes, what, 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 what is our anthropology? What is our theology? Where do we believe that we came from? In whose image are we created as we see it? Where are we going? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be about? What's the purpose of life? What's our teleology? What's our ontology? What's our anthropology? What's our theology? How do we relate to each other? These are important questions that are expressed in answer implicitly in who the most highly rewarded, most handsomely compensated leaders of our day are. Look at them, look at their skills, look at their qualities, look at their character, look at their abilities, and you will see what is regarded as being in the shortest supply and in the greatest need. And again, 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 if you look at the history of American compulsory government schooling, what you'll find is 
the very wealthy people who poured money into this being the way of things in America about a century ago, they were in many cases the tycoons. They were the wealthiest men. And as they thought about it, they thought, clearly we are the fittest to survive. And these other people, these riffraff, they are not the fittest to survive. And so the best that can be done for them really is giving them a basic schooling. It's not to say that they're going to get a good quality education, but they'll get a basic level of schooling, enough to work in a factory, enough to perform reasonably well in the military if we're at war, enough to defend democracy, so-called. I'm curious that because this has never been a democracy. This is a republic, madam, if we can keep it. A republic, madam, which is a nation governed by laws, first and foremost, not by men. That's why you change out the men on a regular basis, but you don't change the constitution without a very high burden of proof having been established that this is the will of we, the people of these United States. And this is why we homeschool. Speaking of billionaires who are very talented, very engaging, very confident, very capable. Elon Musk, as you of course know, purchased Twitter here a while back and it was all anybody could talk about or think about, especially if they were in media, especially if they spent a lot of time on Twitter, especially if they were in government bureaucracies that had backdoor access to all of your private messages on Twitter, especially if you were a staffer for a Democrat politician who occasionally dropped a line and said, let's just go ahead and ban this person from the platform. We don't like him. He says critical things of our guy. Elon Musk just sat down for a interview with the Babylon Bee at Twitter HQ. It was posted to the Babylon Bee Twitter account, which is of course reinstated, which is to say some good has come from Elon Musk buying Twitter but it was posted up yesterday afternoon. I watched it and was very entertained. I was very intrigued. It's a very, very interesting story. What's going on over at Twitter with Elon? And it's very fascinating to me to watch the Babylon Bee guys sit down with an apparent friend and fan in Elon Musk. Richest man in the world bought Twitter, or at least so the joke goes, but I don't think it's much of a joke bought Twitter because the Babylon Bee was given the boot. They were kicked off the platform. And here today, you may know, the day started off with the Daily Wire, another outlet that I very much like, I very much enjoy. Many conservatives in America very much enjoy, very much appreciate, are very thankful for, and hope to see the success of. We pray for the folks over at the Daily Wire for all our sakes. But Jeremy Boring, the CEO of The Daily Wire, took to Twitter this morning and also posted, or it was posted about anyways, to The Daily Wire, and I read it this morning before I went to work, that they were planning on screening and streaming for free the documentary, What is a Woman?, which The Daily Wire and Matt Walsh put together and published a year ago, the one-year anniversary, they were going to stream it on Twitter for free. And initially, when they asked for permission to do this, 
they were told enthusiastically. Absolutely, that would be great. And then here, very recently, there was a follow-up after Twitter asked to watch the video beforehand. And they were told, reportedly, and now we've changed our minds, unless you are willing to edit out a couple of instances of misgendering that are found in the video. If you're willing to do that, then you're good. But otherwise, not even your followers will be able to see this in their feed. And so they posted about it this morning. And the big question in my mind, as I'm watching this, as I'm looking at this, is, well, what exactly was the point of Elon Musk buying Twitter if this is what is going to happen? This is what comes of his buying Twitter as the Daily Wire gets canceled. How can this be? You know, this can't be right. This is why you let things play out a little bit instead of jumping to conclusions. Or it's wise to, anyways. But as the day went on, there was another follow-up story about how Elon Musk was traveling abroad internationally. And he actually replied in tweet form publicly to Jeremy Boring on Twitter to say, a mistake has been made by many people at Twitter. Of course, streaming your documentary is allowed on Twitter. Misgendering somebody or not using their preferred pronoun is at worst rude. It's certainly not illegal. At worst, it's rude. And he says, furthermore, I personally use whatever preferred pronouns somebody wants me to use, just like I use their preferred name. But for the same reasons, I'm opposed to ostracization, violent threats, exclusion of somebody just on the basis of their having declined to use preferred pronouns. If they say, no, that's not correct, and they want to have a debate about it, well, I'm opposed to them being threatened and bullied and attacked. And kudos to Elon Musk. I think that's an excellent development. I'll be interested to see what happens over at Twitter. But this is to say, who the CEO is makes a huge difference. This was not the response before Elon Musk purchased Twitter. Who the owner of a major corporation is makes a huge difference. And can I just suggest that the very most capable people that we put in charge of major corporations or the folks that we perceive to be the very most capable, we'll put it that way, might in actual fact very often be more like those 10 spies in Numbers chapter 14 and not so much like the two who testified truly, who gave a good report, which is to say they made the right call, factoring in the evidence of God having delivered Israel to this point. I think a lot of the people we have as leaders over tribes are in actual fact cowards and selfish and they're more likely to do what they perceive everybody wants them to do instead of actually leading. Leadership is not just doing what everybody else is doing. That's not leadership. If you dress it up and you try and make a good show and you're especially polished because you went to some kind of a prep school where they teach you how to fake it till you make it, until you get to that top tier, get that brass ring, get that huge salary and your house is so big, your cars are so expensive and shiny and fast. Nobody even asks anymore except for people in your class. Well, I dare say maybe this is a generational problem. Maybe this is a problem of 
a certain generation having been in charge and predominantly having been either educated in the public schools or having subservient to them a workforce which was predominantly educated in the public schools. That is my position. That is my view. I would encourage you strongly to check out the full interview between Babylon B and Elon Musk at Twitter HQ. It's delightful. It's interesting. It's entertaining. Very thought-provoking. Who knows what will come next? God knows. But we can follow along because we don't. We don't know what's going to come next. If we want to have a good idea or at least a decent shot at a projection and being prepared, we should watch these kinds of things. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. I know you could be. You could be watching something else. You could be listening to even more of this podcast instead, but nevertheless, only all the more. I would encourage you, check out this full interview with Elon Musk and the Babylon Bee at Twitter HQ. You'll be glad you did. Next up, I'm going to go ahead and play for you a clip of a press conference that was held in which Ron DeSantis was asked about some of the criticism that Donald Trump has lobbed his way with the expectation that DeSantis was going to announce a run for president. And now having done so, what does DeSantis make of it? What does he have to say in response? Cut one. Take a listen. Ron DeSantis. Here it is. So you talked about uh, changing your tone a little bit with former President Trump. I don't believe you mentioned him here by name tonight, but does this mean you're going to be a bit more aggressive with campaigning against him? So look, I'm going to respond to uh, attacks. I mean, if, if you say Cuomo did a better job with COVID than Florida did, first of all, that's not what he used to say. This is like new, like six months ago, he would have never said that, right? He used to say how great Florida was. Hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Are you kidding me? Um, so, so some of this stuff, I think, is, look, if someone is saying that, I am going to counterpunch. I'm going to fight back on it. I'm going to focus my fire on Biden. And I think he should do the same. He gives Biden a free pass. Um, I'm focusing on Biden. That's my focus. And that's the way it's done, ladies and gentlemen. That's the way it's done. That's the correct response. Nailed it. In my opinion, in my view, uh, a couple things. One, it once again matters very much who the leader is, who the person setting the tone is. We see that in the state of Florida when there's an actual crisis. If the governor's just doing what everybody, what everybody wants him to do, whatever everybody is polling as favorable towards, versus if the governor in charge actually has sound principles that accord with God's law, God's standard, timeless truth, objective reality, basic morality which comes from God. It can only come from God. We don't get to decide what's right and wrong. It has to come from God. If you have somebody in a position of authority where that's their top priority versus somebody who just says, well, we'll get them next time. Right now, all I care about is just doing whatever is polling well or whatever I'm told is polling well or whatever everybody else is doing. So that way, if it's wrong, well, we're all wrong. We're all together in this. DeSantis has demonstrated, not just articulated, he's demonstrated through COVID exactly what a leader should 
be acting like and talking like and thinking like and representing if he is actually a leader and not just a follower. If he's not just a demagogue, if he's not just a con man, a leader should be doing what DeSantis was willing to do in the state of Florida. And I love a couple of things about his response here. I'm 100% on board with DeSantis. One, I love that he says, you know what? I'm going to punch back if he wants to attack me. I think that's regrettable. I think he and I both should be focusing our attentions and efforts on Joe Biden right now. That would be better. And you hear some clapping. And I would clap too if I were present because that's exactly right. That's exactly right. For another thing, he points out in passing, and I think graciously enough, and it, if it was prepared, he, he delivered it in a very unstudied way that seemed honest, spontaneous, nonplussed, genuine, entirely reasonable. But he says, hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Are you kidding me? <laughs> if Ron DeSantis is such a terrible governor, then why did Trump's family moved to Florida during the pandemic after Trump lost in 2020. And yes, I do believe, actually, I do believe that there was a massive amount of fraud. I think the whole COVID business was fraud. And that doesn't mean that Trump should be president again. See, these things can be true at the same time, that there was fraud in 2020, and also that Trump has made himself not the best choice, not the best option. He is. He is a better choice, a far better choice than Joe Biden. No two ways about it. And if there are some Democrats that I would say are a better choice or at least an okay choice, I don't think they stand a even small chance in the Democrat party as it is now. And so if we want relief, if we want national security, if we want security for our homes and our families, if we want there to be a prosperous economy, if we want there to be good conduct and good character held up to emulate for our children, for our grandchildren, for future generations, if we want this country to exist for future generations, I don't see anybody on the left, I don't see anybody among the Democrats who is going to get us there. In part because barring some very odd, very, very odd Surprise, the radical left that has taken over the Democratic Party would eat alive anybody who's a Democrat who actually won that wasn't willing to go along with the radical left agenda. Now, could I see reasonable, moderate Democrats coalescing around a reasonable, moderate Democrat candidate? Potentially, possibly, maybe. Could I see there being some progress that could be made. And by progress, I mean going back the way that we came. I mean progress the way that C.S. Lewis would define it, going back sooner rather than later. If you're going down the wrong road, we're going down the wrong road, ladies and gentlemen. So this isn't progress. This is this that's happening right now with the promotion of sexual immorality very aggressively, very publicly for everybody, including children, especially children these days, because they've gotten bored diddling each other these adults, these perverts, now they demand not just equal respect, they demand special respect, special privileges, pride of place. When that's what 
characterizes the left, I don't think for a moment we can hold our breaths and maybe the Democrat Party will produce somebody who is palatable or who is reasonable or who is tolerable. I think the Democrat Party needs to go the way of the Whig Party. There have been other political parties in American political history, by the way. They don't all exist still. And I think the Democrat Party should go the way of the Whig Party. And I think for that matter, that Trump, if he is going to be vainglorious and selfish, and he's going to put his own pride before the best interest of this country, well, then I think he needs to go the way of the Whig Party as well. And I hope that's not the case. I, I really do. I'm very thankful for the four years of respite that we had. Can you imagine, in hindsight, just think about this for a moment. Just think about it. Can you imagine if eight years of Obama had been followed by even four years of Clinton without Trump in between? As it is right now, we had eight years of Obama followed by four years of Trump. And now Biden has been able to do a tremendous amount of damage. And I think the amount of damage that Biden has done since he took office pales in comparison to what Clinton would have done in a cumulative fashion on top of what Biden and Obama did from 2008 to 2016. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean just because the Democrats are worse, it doesn't mean that we can't do better. And I think we can, unless I'm missing something. And if you know what I'm missing, by all means, point it out. But unless I'm missing something, we could do better and probably the best in my lifetime with a perhaps possible exception of Ronald Reagan. But I don't know. I think Ron DeSantis has the potential to be an even better president than Ronald Reagan from what I've seen thus far. If I'm missing something and you are seeing it, then by all means, point it out to me. But barring that possibility, I don't see some of the failures of Ronald Reagan when I look at Ron DeSantis. He's much, much younger. I think he has much less of a chance of being maligned, sidelined on the claim that he's not of sound mind. We've got that with Biden right now, but we had some of that with Reagan, unfortunately. But like Reagan, here's another Ron, another Ronnie. Ron DeSantis hasn't just talked a good game, isn't just bullied and blustered his way into this space. I would say he's earned it. And I trust him. And I'm going to keep on trusting him, humanly speaking, as much as I trust any politician, more than I trust any politician these days, actually, as a matter of fact, unless I see some sound reason why I shouldn't. And I think that Trump should just step aside. I know a number of people who would agree with me on that. I think Trump should step aside. And I think he should throw all of his weight behind helping Ron DeSantis to be successful. Because if that's what's really best for this country, then maybe, just maybe, Donald Trump could help to salvage something of the reputation for the baby boomer generation by putting his ego in the backseat and putting the next generation's needs before his own. Just saying. Now, what is the or else? What is the or else if the left continues to hold on to as much dominance in these various institutions these various sectors of American life that they have had their claws sunk into. I'm going to play for you cut two. This is a clip from MSNBC. 
shared by Cardinal Pritchard over at Not The Bee. As of May 30th, MSNBC talking head calls boycotting Target literally terrorism. Here it is. Cut to. Take a listen. When Target caves into this, then it says that the moment you threaten the employees of even a very large corporation, you get to control its policies. This is economic terrorism, literally terrorism, creating fear among the workers and forcing the corporations to sell the things you want, and not sell the things you don't. So, hmm, I am, <laughs> I'm going to have to chew on that for a moment. <clears throat> let, let me see if I've got this right. It's literally terrorism if I and my family and a whole bunch of like-minded Americans say, we don't want to shop at Target anymore because of what you're promoting in the month of June and what you're deciding to promote other times of the year as well. In fact, what you're willing to promote to your employees and your customers all throughout the year, I don't want to shop at your store anymore. It's literally terrorism. So it terrorizes them. They're afraid. They're very afraid. Therefore, it's terrorism. See how that works? The idea here is not to murder anybody. I don't think any conservatives, I mean, not that I've seen, not that I've noticed, not that I've heard. I don't think any conservatives are calling for, oh, I don't know, blowing up Target stores, murdering Target employees, beating them, tarring and feathering their managers. I don't think anybody's talking about storming Target stores, taking all their merchandise out of the parking lot and setting it on fire. I don't think anybody's suggesting anything like that. I'm certainly not. But, you know, it's it's interesting because the left does that. The left does the very thing that this commentator over at MSNBC is claiming conservatives, predominantly conservatives and Christians, have called for with regards to Target. The left does that. The left threatens violence. The left certainly boycotts and pulls advertising. Is it literally terrorism if the left says we're not going to advertise on Twitter anymore because Elon Musk wants to promote free speech on the platform? Is that literally terrorism too? Hmm? You know, what's really interesting is Harris Rigby at Not The Bee also published a piece May 29th, Target stores across U.S. hit with bomb threats because they, quote, turned their back, end quote, on the LGBT community. So here's the story. Targets across the country are in danger now because of all the intolerant conservatives threatening to bomb the stores for their inclusion and acceptance of all people. And, oh, wait, 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 what? What was that? Oh, I'm sorry. It's the mostly peaceful LGBTQ plus activists who are threatening to literally blow up Target stores. Cleveland 19 News is reporting that five stores in Ohio and Pennsylvania received bomb threats last week because of Target's perceived abandonment of the LGBT community after moving satanic products and tucking swimsuits from the front of their stores. Target continued selling the grooming and pro-trans products, but had the gall to move them to the back of the store so the tolerant, peaceful leftists called in fake bomb threats. Note also, Harris Rigby says, The LGBT lobby, as represented by Gavin Newsom, also called Target cowards and demanded they put the Pride collection back front and center. So here's the tweet from Gavin Newsom, quote, CEO of Target, Brian Cornell, selling out the LGBTQ plus community to extremists 
is a real profile in courage. This isn't just a couple stores in the South. There is a systemic attack on the gay community happening across the country. Wake up, America. This doesn't stop here. You're black, you're Asian, you're Jewish, you're a woman. You're next. No, 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 no. Nope, 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 nope. You're a demagogue, Gavin Newsom. You're a demagogue. You're a liar, and you're of your father, the devil. Just bald-faced lying. Just that's all it is. That's all it is. And you should repent. You should really repent. This is bald-faced lying. To call conservative Christians like my wife and I who say, you know what, I don't really especially want to take my kids into, or my money into, my limited money, ever increasingly limited money, thanks to inflation, thanks to the irresponsible spending and taxing and printing of money by the left. I don't want to take my children or my limited cash into a Target store to buy anything if this is the way you guys are going to be. I can't even be around you guys right now. We've enjoyed Target stores in the past. It's not that I want to see these places burn. In fact, I distinctly remember during the Black Lives Matter riots and looting that happened a few years ago, coincidentally, right around the same time as the election where Donald Trump was running and the left was freaking out. Thanks, George Soros. Thanks, Barack Obama. Thanks, CNN. Thanks, MSNBC. Thanks, Democrat Party. I distinctly remember... Target stores being looted. If conservatives are extremists for saying, we're not going to shop at your store anymore, then what the hell does that make the leftists who literally set fire to your stores and violently assaulted your employees and stole merchandise, straight up stole merchandise from your stores across the country, supposedly in the name of promoting racial justice or combating systemic racism? I'll wait. I'll wait. While I wait (laughs) for an answer on who the actual extremists are, those who loot and burn Target stores, or those who just say, I'm not going to shop there. So long as you guys are like this. About the transing the kids thing. About the trying to make the kids into homosexuals. And proud of it. Thing. I'm going to play for you another clip here. This one, cut three, Anthony Bass, pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, making a statement to the press after getting in a little bit of hot water, posting some material to social media about Target and Bud Light and how conservatives are boycotting them. I'll let him speak for himself. It's not a long clip. 34 seconds is all. Here is Anthony Bass. Take a listen. Cut three. I recognize yesterday uh, I made a post that was hurtful to the Pride community, which includes friends of mine and close family members of mine. And I am truly sorry for that. Um, I just spoke with my teammates and shared with them my actions yesterday. I apologize with them. And as of right now, I'm using the Blue Jays resources to better educate myself to make better decisions moving forward. Uh, the ballpark is for everybody. Uh, we include all fans at the ballpark. And we, and we want to welcome everybody. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Okay. So 
First of all, thank you to Daniel Chayton over at The Daily Wire for reporting on this. That clip that I just played for you was from an article which will be included in the episode description for this podcast episode. You can read the full write-up from Daniel Chayton. But in that same reporting from Daniel Chayton over at The Daily Wire is a link to what this baseball player, professional baseball player, had gotten in trouble for. And it's a video on Instagram that he either liked or shared or commented on. He amplified in some way. He drew attention to in some way. It's still not entirely clear to me how he did, what it is that he did to amplify this. But here's what the baseball player for the Toronto Blue Jays just apologized for. Here it is, cut four. See what you think and see if you agree that this should have been the reason for an apology. Here's the reason biblically why I believe Christians ought to be boycotting Target and Bud Light and any other corporation that's pushing the things they're pushing. I think a lot of people make this into a political issue or they say, oh, what's the big deal? If, you know, is it really going to make that big of a difference if I'm shopping there or not shopping there? Here's what the Bible says. It tells us what to do as Christians in Ephesians chapter five. It says this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful to even talk of the things that they do in secret. So what does that mean to take no part? Well, what's Target do? It's a business. They, they make money. They sell things. And to take part in that is to take part in that God of mammon that they're serving and to take part in the darkness that they're purveying and getting out to the world and, and, and shoving into children's faces. And to take part in that is to give them your money. And I believe the Bible gives us radical precedent to say no. We are running from that and to instead, instead expose those things, to, to, to shout it to all the people that have ears to hear that this is evil, this is demonic, we won't stand for it, we're not going to go to the stores anymore, and we're not going to give them our money. We're going to let our voice be heard so that people can see the light and so that people can be pulled out of the darkness. Okay. So did you catch all that? Was that all clear? Was that all cogent. Do you understand what was just said? Long and short of it, what's being argued is that what the apostle Paul is writing in the New Testament at a minimum, at a minimum, means that Christians have a right, but it may even mean Christians have a duty, have an obligation, have a responsibility to not frequent businesses not frequent corporations that are promoting things which God says are sinful and wicked and dark and which lead to pain and death and separation from God. At a minimum, the verse he's highlighting means that this is not literally terrorism, but he makes a good point. And this is very much of a piece with or very close to what Matt Frad said. Catholic apologist, host of the Pints with Aquinas podcast and YouTube channel. This isn't about trying to vindictively destroy anybody or anything as Christians. This is about not wanting to participate in wickedness, in unrighteousness. We want to pursue righteousness. We're called to be holy for our God is holy. And if you don't 
believe that, go look it up. Fact check, right? (laughs) Where are the independent third-party fact checkers? Go look it up. We didn't write that as Christians. So what are you actually saying? If this is literally terrorism, you're labeling Christians who actually believe their Bibles and actually are striving to live a Christian life and not just express an affinity for Jesus. You're labeling Bible-believing Christians who want to be faithful terrorists. Some of the leading comments, by the way, on this Instagram video, two of them I'll share with you, just two. The first is from a certain Scotty Scotch Scotch. So you can tell this guy's going to have primo theology, top shelf theology. Scotty Scotch Scotch. Scott, Scotty Scotch Scotch. It's kind of hard to say fast. Scotty Scotch Scotch writes, classic example of pulling a verse right out of its context and using it to push your own agenda. Paul is speaking to the church about ridding itself of sexual impurity. I think we've seen plenty of sexual immorality within the church exposed in recent years. How about we work on that first? We won't though, because that takes hard work. It's much easier to get up in arms about issues like this, just so we can feel a little better about ourselves. And let me address that briefly. One, (laughs) what is it that you think the Christian parents who are saying, I don't want my kids around the promotion of sexual immorality because this stuff is literally telling them to be proud of sexual immorality. And if they're not, well, then they're a bigot and they're hateful and all the rest. What do you think those Christian parents are doing when they say, I don't want my kids anywhere around these displays promoting homosexuality and bisexuality and transgenderism. I don't want my kids being indoctrinated by that or brainwashed by that or inducted into a neo-pagan sex cult by that. So I'm not going to spend my money there. I'm not going to frequent that store. I can shop somewhere else. I can get the things that I need from someone else. Isn't that also Christians working on themselves first? Isn't that the church also working on itself first? Come on. Yes, Paul does say to Scotty Scotch Scotch's point, although maybe he had a little bit too much Scotty Scotch Scotch before he wrote and published this comment. Paul does say when he says in Corinthians, have nothing to do with those who are sexually immoral. And by that, he doesn't mean those who are outside of the church, those who are in the world, because then we couldn't be in the world. He says, have nothing to do with those who are in the church who are flagrantly, unrepentantly sexually immoral in the present, out and loud and proud. But Paul also says in Corinthians, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more so the matters pertaining to this life? Which is to say, at least in the eschaton, at least on judgment day, The church will be judging the world, the true church, not just those who say, Lord, Lord, but are workers of lawlessness, but the true church, those who hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into your place of rest, will judge the world and will judge angels. And so on the one hand, yes, you get some points for recognizing Paul is not saying you don't have anything to do with anybody who has any kind of immoral lifestyle. But what was Jesus doing? This is an excellent point that somebody made in a video that my wife sent to me. I'll go looking for it and I'll try and put it in a future podcast episode. (laughs) What was Jesus doing when he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes in the gospel accounts? 
He was calling them to repentance. He wasn't affirming their lifestyle. He wasn't endorsing. He wasn't telling them they're perfect just the way that they are because that's love. No, no. He said it was the sick who needed a physician when the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees asked his disciples why he ate with sinners, why he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He said it was the sick who needed the physician, which is to say, by all means, reach out to those who are sexually immoral, who are not professing any faith in Christ, and compassionately share the gospel with them, share the love of Christ with them, absolutely 100%. But I don't have to go and frequent their establishments. I don't have to go and be a client of a prostitute just to prove to you that I am working on myself first. How opposite would that be? How counterintuitive, how contradictory would that be? You know, if it happened that I was doing some street evangelism and I happened to come across a pimp and I shared the gospel with him and I was polite, I was courteous, but I called him to repentance, what would you say then? Would you say, ha, how dare you work on yourself first? Or would you say, good? Or would you say, that evil reprobate preying on women, because what you're actually more concerned about is going along with the crowd, doing what is considered to be necessary to have friendship with the world right now. I concede that you have something of a point while at the same time also perceiving that you're twisting scripture here and you're drawing accusations where they don't belong against the saints in this context, in this case. Is it good for the church to remove the plank from its own eye before going and helping somebody else with the speck in theirs? Absolutely, yes. But I don't think that's what you're actually calling for here because you're painting with a very broad brush. You're saying, oh yeah, there have been instances. And what? You're going to just collectively condemn all Christians as though all Christians are therefore guilty. That's not careful. And it's totally self-serving and it's totally compromised. It's corrupt. But you'll say, well, okay, some of what this guy is talking about. You know, I can see why the Toronto Blue Jays pitcher got into some trouble. That's no excuse for him apologizing. It's no excuse. No excuse whatsoever. It's also no excuse for anybody getting upset with him in an institutional way. The ball club getting upset with him, the media getting upset with him, fans getting upset with him, some stranger Scotty Scotch Scotch getting upset with him on the internet or with this guy on the internet. There's no excuse for it. What was that about planks and specks? Yeah. You know what? How about you do that first? How about you do that first? What I see here is a very sound biblical reason why a Christian could boycott Target. I'm not saying must, because this could fall into the category, more or less, of meat offered to idols. But we don't use our liberty to destroy each other. So if you're free to not buy meat sold by a vendor who's literally consecrated his product with prayers and petitions to false gods. If they say, I can't in good conscience, then let them not. Let them not. And if you can eat it, then eat it. Eat that in good conscience. If you can eat it in good conscience. 
But by your own standard of judgment, if you are affirming these things in the very next scene and in the previous scene to your leaving this comment here, God knows. God knows better. I might not know, but God knows. One more comment I'd like to respond to. This one from Fabulous Fabby. Perfect example of how Christian nationalists misconstrue scripture to make it mean literally whatever they want. You guys are just spreading hate at this point. No wonder non-Christians don't like us. It looks like it's a she from the profile picture. Maybe, maybe not. Non-Christians don't like us. So a couple things. One, what was I saying here recently about how we define Christian nationalism? For somebody even just to say we should boycott Target because this is not okay. This is the promotion of deeds of darkness, sexual immorality, wickedness. We don't want any part of this. We don't want to support this. We don't want to condone it. We don't want to approve of it. We should shop somewhere else. Okay, you know what? If that's his view and that's what his conscience is compelling him to, then how is that hatred? How, how is that hatred? We should hate what is evil. We should. In fact, that's why Jesus was Jesus and was able to be the atoning sacrifice. That's what it means that he was obedient to the will of the Father. He hated what was evil and he loved what was good. And how do we know what is good and evil? Not by taking a poll, not by counting noses, not by some pure democratic double check whereby you say, okay, you know, what we believed yesterday, it's in the past, it's a new day. No, no. Look to God's word. What does God say is good? What does God say is evil? What I don't hear, and maybe I missed it, but dude with good news at Instagram didn't at a single solitary point that I caught express that we should seize control of the government so that we can drive target employees and shareholders into the ocean. I, I didn't catch that. I, maybe I missed it. Maybe you caught it. I didn't catch it. What he said was individual Christians should, the church in America should stop shopping at Target. And here's why. And that's his view. But somebody says, fabulously fabby, perfect example of how Christian nationalists misconstrue scripture. Are you saying this guy's a Christian nationalist just based on what he said here? If that's the case, then I go back to my response to Matt Emerson. Matt Emerson's piece at Nine Marks wants to make Christian nationalism into whatever Stephen Wolf says it is. And you have to realize that even somebody who thinks that they are a Christian is saying, this is actually Christian nationalism. This is what they think of. Any public expression of Christianity that would change culture or the political landscape or affect things in a public way. Any expression of Christian morality publicly that would tell some people you're a sinner is, in their view, Christian nationalism. And if you want to say Christians shouldn't be Christian nationalists, and that is the actual definition in most people's minds in broader American society right now of what a Christian nationalist is, then what you're saying is Christians shouldn't be Christians. And that isn't to say we all have to agree with dude with good news here. I'm not trying to bind everybody's conscience. We all have to boycott Target. Because again, I think this is probably meat offered to idols. But that is to say, we have the liberty to abstain. And it is not literally terrorism. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me with that. That's nonsense. If you're feeling afraid, 
in this moment, if you're feeling some terror, maybe it's because God's word was brought to bear on this situation and you realize because you've been doing these things, because you've made your lifestyle revolve around this being your identity, because you've been affirming others who do likewise, and this is actually, according to God's word, evil and abominable, and God hates it, and he's going to punish it, and such who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, as in they're going to hell. Even if they think they're Christians, even if they're going to say, Lord, Lord, they're going to go to hell. It's a false conversion. It's a false assurance of salvation. Maybe that fear you're feeling, that terror you're feeling, that uncomfortability you're feeling isn't the fault of Christians. Maybe that's not us being terrorists. Maybe that's actually an appropriate guilt and shame and fear of the Lord that would lead you to repentance if you didn't love the world more than you love what is good. Just a thought. Now let's talk about another corporation. We've been talking quite a lot about corporate America in this episode. Let's talk about another corporation in the U.S. This one, a brand that I like very much. As a matter of fact, I have liked Target very much. My wife and I have shopped there plenty of times. I like their products. I like the way their stores are organized. I like how clean their stores are. I like the products that they carry. For the most part, I don't like the whole pride line at all, but I like their fashion sense. I like their selection. I like the quality, generally speaking. A company I like even more, though, and have for years, Chick-fil-A. We got to talk about Chick-fil-A. Commodore Vanderbilt over at Not To Be two days ago published this piece highlighting some tweets from Ian Miles Chong saying Chick-fil-A has gone woke. So here's the screenshot from Chick-fil-A.com. Chick-fil-A Inc.'s commitment to being better at together means embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything we do. Ian Miles Chong rightly points out DEI is literally wokeness. You can dress it up in nice language that appeals to your Christianity or sense of empathy, but in practice, it always boils down to the same social justice nonsense that is destroying every industry and institution. So here's a close-up of the broader statement, the bigger statement from Chick-fil-A. When we're better at together, we're better together. One of our core values at Chick-fil-A Incorporated is that we are better together. When we combine our unique backgrounds and experiences with a culture of belonging, we can discover new ways to strengthen the quality of care we deliver to customers, to the communities we serve, and to the world. We understand that getting better at together means we learn better, care better, grow better, and serve better. Chick-fil-A's commitment to being better at together means embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything we do. I hate to break it to you, you can't just take these words independently and say, well, you know, I'm a fan of diversity. Yeah, yes, that's okay, right? Check. Check the box. I like diversity. What's the big deal? You can't just take equity and then read some of the things I've shared on this podcast, actually, in recent months about how equity is a conservative virtue. It's a conservative value. It's not just something that the left gets to like claim to and say, ah, you know, we had it first. No, equity is a good thing if properly defined. It helps to moderate calls for justice after a fashion so that the poor man or the rich man is not run roughshod over. The orphan and the widow is not oppressed, maligned, destroyed, abused. 
but you can't just take equity by itself in this list and say, well, okay, you know, equity's not so bad. And then come to inclusion and you say, well, I, <clears throat> you know, what's so bad about inclusion, right? Like we should include people. We don't want to exclude people, right? So I like inclusion. Taken together, DEI is corporate Marxism. It is. It is, 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 it is. DEI is cultural Marxism. And the way they're trying to seize the means of production in the United States of America, which by the way, ultimately is not the corporations and it's not the private property. Ultimately, the means of production is you and me. The way they're trying to do it is being weasels with words and being manipulative DEI taken together, it's just like with Black Lives Matter. You can say, well, black, I, I don't have a problem with black. Lives, yeah, I, I enjoy life. Matter, yeah, I, I like meaning and value being ascribed to people of dark skin who are alive. I also agree that black lives matter. Yeah, black lives matter. Yep. But what do I need to do? I'll put a Put a different cover photo on my social media profile, plant a sign in my front yard, put a sticker on my rear window of my vehicle. Okay. Yeah. That's no problem. I agree. Black Lives Matter. You have to take these things together. You have to take these things together and not by any means do I mean to be rude or hurtful unnecessarily, but there's a naivety. There's a childishness if we would take these words separately and individually and just suppose you can do that without the baggage associated. DEI is wokeness. This is of a piece with CRT. It's of a piece with gender theory too. This is liberal Christianity, which if you want to know a little bit more about, then you maybe have learned to this point, go and read J. Gresham Macon's Liberalism in Christianity. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not the title. Liberalism in Christianity is what the liberals think it should be called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's their version. Christianity and liberalism. We put Christianity first. So Christianity is the standard, remember? Liberalism is what we are supposed to be weighing and measuring against God's word, against what Jesus commanded, against God's holiness and the holiness he therefore has called us to, not the other way around. And that's all the difference in the world between the true gospel of Jesus Christ and a false gospel. That's all the difference in the world between the testimony of the 10 spies who came back from Canaan and the two who were ultimately permitted to inherit the land during their lifetime. So all of this is to say with regards to Chick-fil-A, I have very much enjoyed their product. I think they've done a phenomenal job with customer service. I don't want to stop eating at Chick-fil-A. Please, please, please tell me Chick-fil-A is not going woke and all in with CRT and gender theory and what's next, right? They were threatened with boycotts. And here's the hypocrisy of the MSNBC commentator, by the way. The big pressure on some companies with leadership that's not on board with this is unless they do these things, then their companies, their stores, their employees will be harassed, have been harassed, but will be harassed even harder. Their stores will be vandalized. They will be chased out of wherever they set up, and they will be boycotted, and they have been boycotted. These hypocrites, these sons of Satan, want to say they are the arbiters of who is and isn't a real Christian, 
and who is and isn't a hateful bigot. All the while, they accuse conservative Christians of being literal terrorists for boycotting Target. And all the while, their boycotts and threatened boycotts of Chick-fil-A are, I guarantee it, the reason for Chick-fil-A having DEI in their website like they do. In other news, someone spotted a pride flag in behind-the-scenes footage from The Chosen. Check out the show's official response. So here, for the featured image, if you click through the link I'll put in the description for this podcast episode, you'll see the character of Jesus, or the actor, I should say, dressed up in character, the actor who plays Jesus in The Chosen, behind the scenes with a rainbow flag in the background. And when I say the background, I don't mean far in the distance. I mean on the set, amidst the equipment, the normal, you know, production equipment for making the show. Season four of The Chosen. The write-up from Not The Bee includes some embedded tweets, including from John Root, who writes May 29th, Hey, at The Chosen TV, can you explain why there's a pride flag on set? Here is some of the response from The Chosen TV Twitter account. And I quote, just like with our hundreds of cast and crew who have different beliefs or no belief at all than we do, we will work with anyone on our show who helps us portray or honor the authentic Jesus. We ask that audiences let the show speak for itself and focus on the message, not the messenger, because we'll always let you down. Now, can I ask you just hypothetically, right? Just hang with me for a moment. Can I ask you hypothetically whether this would be the response if they had a Nazi flag flying in the background? How about a Confederate flag? Would that work? How about a three percenters flag? How about, not, not by the way, not that I put the three percenters in the same category as Nazis, just to be very, very clear. But let's just grab some groups that are acceptable for you to hate these days. If this were a three percenters flag in the background, how about a tea party flag? How about the don't tread on me flag? Would those be acceptable? A Confederate flag, I don't think would be acceptable in the background. Maybe it would, right? Maybe there's a shot of behind the scenes with a Confederate flag too, but I doubt it. I doubt it. How about a Make America Great Again flag or a trucker hat? You know, what if the character of Jesus, the actor playing the character of Jesus was wearing a Make America Great Again hat? Would that be the same line from the Twitter account for The Chosen TV? Hey, we'll work, we'll work with anybody, right? We'll work with anybody. Or is this just another instance of creeping compromise? Hey, man, we got a good thing going here. We don't want to mess it up. Yeah, we've got to include these people. Oh, really? Are, do you include everybody? Do you, do you also permit symbols of people who 
it's unpopular to support these days in the mainstream. Just curious. Just curious. Just asking for a friend. Or is this partiality? I would venture this is partiality, as a matter of fact. Speaking of partiality, though, Newsweek has a point, and this will be the last story for this podcast episode. We'll have to pick it up again some other time with follow-ups on some of these. Newsweek posted a video. I don't know if you could call it a story or a report, but it's a video with a short one-paragraph summary and explanation to MSN.com. It showed up in the tab when I hover over the weather widget in the bottom left corner of my start taskbar on my computer. Up comes this. And so I clicked through and I thought, hmm, interesting. Donald Trump's pride merchandise resurfaces amid Target Bud Light backlash. So here's the quote. Here's the paragraph in its entirety from Newsweek. Conservatives calling for boycotts of brands that express support for the LGBTQ plus community have been accused of hypocrisy after Donald Trump's pride range of merchandise resurfaced on social media. In 2020, the former president sold rainbow-colored Make America Great Again t-shirts and caps in his campaign store so that people could show their, quote, support for the LGBT community and the 45th president, end quote. And can I just say, once again, this is another reason why I would not say that Trump is my first pick. I would not say that Trump is the first choice. I don't think he's the best choice. This is unacceptable to me for the same reason that Target selling Pride merchandise for the month of June is unacceptable to me for the same reason that Kohl's selling Pride merchandise for the month of June is unacceptable to me. I also find this unacceptable. And yet, let me just explain to you how this is not hypocritical. Okay. Are you ready? Here it goes. I am a father of eight children, a ninth on the way in November, actually on my birthday. Fun fact. My wife and I homeschool our kids. We're very involved in church. We're very involved in the lives of the people that we go to church with. I am very interested in the welfare of my country. I want to know that my children will grow up in a country where they are free to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience, and more to the point, more specifically, they are free to be Christians and not be hauled off to prison and not be thrown out of work and not be destroyed personally, socially, politically, professionally, because they are Christians, because they believe what the Bible says and they articulate that. I am interested in us having a free market because I believe that that is very closely related to my children being able to have food to eat, being able to keep the lights on while they're trying to do their studies, being able to keep the computers on while they're trying to do their schoolwork on the computers. I believe that it's important to my children's well-being, that they would be able to put gas in the mowers when they go around the neighborhood offering to mow people's yards and 
weed whack their sidewalks. I believe that it's important to my children's ability to get married and have children of their own that we are not outlawing electricity, essentially. That we're not outlawing my children from being able to access the means of production so that they can be free and independent, self-sufficient, minding their own business, working with their hands, living a quiet life, walking properly before outsiders, just like Paul writes in Thessalonians. And so I come to the question of Target or Kohl's or Chick-fil-A or The Chosen or Donald Trump. And I say in all of the above, if I have somewhere else to go that's a better option for the sake of my conscience, then I'm going to go to that place. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And I can think about that holistically. I can. I can say, if somebody breaks into my house in the middle of the night and I tell my wife, hey, please call 911. I'm going to go grab the firearm and I'm going to confront this intruder so that they don't get past me to you and the kids, but call 911. When my wife calls 911 in a circumstance like that, my instructions to my wife are not, if it's a guy talking with a lisp, hang up. We'll take our chances. No, no. If it's an effeminate man on the other end of the phone answering for 911 emergency response, then we say, hey, we have a bit of a problem on our hands. We have an emergency. Please send help. Because I can't in good conscience just let whatever is going to happen happen to my family. But the flip side is if I have the option, right? If I have the option to promote what is good and what is true and to endorse someone or some institution that is going to promote more holistically what is good and what is true according to God's word, then yes, actually, that's not hypocrisy. That's me being consistent. If it were the case, let's just say hypothetically, if it were the case that we lived in some small town where the only place to go and buy groceries or clothes or housewares was the local Target store, would I just do without all of the above and say, sorry, Lauren, kids, sorry, you're going to have to starve and go naked and do without because the local Target store is such and such a way. Would I do that? No, I wouldn't. And that's where I think it's important to leave the door open to other Christians being able to, in good conscience, eat meat that is offered to idols. You sanctified it in your mind to your pagan God. I'm going to sanctify it even harder. And actually, my sanctifying it by blessing it, thanking Yahweh God, thanking the Lord Jesus Christ for this thing, trumps your praying over it. You're consecrating it to your pagan gods because my God is God over all gods. All of the gods of the nations are idols compared to my God. My God, if there are any other gods, lowercase g, they are lowercase g gods. My God is uppercase g. He's the God above all gods. If there are any lowercase k kings, my God is the king above all kings. He's the king to which all other kings have to bend the knee. So my king wins. My God wins. But in the meantime, between now and the full realization of that, I'm going to say it's not hypocrisy if Trump is the best option considering the alternatives. 
I am going to also say, if somebody can't in good conscience, they genuinely can't. And it's not some false piety. It's not virtue signaling. It's not them trying to curry favor with the world. If in actual fact, they're more conservative, they're more stridently conservative than Trump is. They're not trying to curry favor with the left. They're like, no, absolutely not. Those guys are insane. Then I say, okay, you know what? I I might disagree, but I'm not going to beat you up about it. And I still want to be friends. And I still actually respect you, even though we don't agree on this. And I'm going to try and persuade you. And I hope you can be okay with that. I'm going to try and persuade you that I think you should vote for Trump anyways, if he's the nominee. But I also, at the same time, just like I said in 2016, you can go back and look it up. The article should still be up at On The Rocks blog, On The Dot Rocks. Go look it up. I was a Ted Cruz guy. And actually now I'm rather disappointed with Ted Cruz. And that's a story for another day. But I'm rather disappointed with him for his response to the Uganda business, some of their laws regarding homosexuality. I think there's more to the story than is being reported, as is always the case. Neil Postman would tell you that. How to Watch TV News is not a bad required reading for American Civics 101. Let me just say, but I was on the Ted Cruz track. And then Ben Carson looked really good. You know what? I I thought to myself, you know what, during the primaries, I'm going to give some money to Ben Carson. And I think I gave him 20 bucks, but that's still $20 more than I've given to any candidate at all. I talk about politics quite a lot, but I don't have money to spare. My investment in the political future of this country is first and foremost, homeschooling my children, trying to raise them with good character in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to be decent to each other, to respect their mother and their father, to be decent to other people to live for the Lord. But I gave $20 to Ben Carson because if you want to know the truth, I would have preferred Ted Cruz or Ben Carson or Rand Paul over Donald Trump in 2016. I thought they were all objectively better candidates. But when they weren't the nominee and Donald Trump was, I looked at Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And If my options were, I'm either going to go and shop at Target or there's literally nowhere to buy food for my kids and my wife. There's literally nowhere to buy some new clothes for my oldest son who's outgrown everything and he's growing and growing and that's great. That's a great thing. Thank God for that. Am I going to just not buy him? Am I just going to not buy him new clothes from anywhere because Target's gone woke? The point is, this is a little bit more complicated than the gotcha from Newsweek posted in MSN.com is wanting to give credit to. And oh, by the way, too, let me just say a word to those who were outraged about Elon Musk not having gotten anything done if Twitter could tell the Daily Wire, no, you cannot screen what is a woman tonight. Listen, listen, guys, listen, you got to be realistic about this. And I was talking with my wife about it. I am still not on Twitter. So for me personally, right? For me personally, nothing has changed. I wasn't on Twitter. I got the boot. It was supposed to be a quote unquote 12 hour suspension and I appealed it. And they've just decided that they don't want to answer the appeal. They're not going to review the appeal or they did within 30 seconds. And they're like, yep, still. And now they've just got it in perpetuity, right? I'm just indefinitely in suspension. You know what? The Babylon Bee is back on, and that's good. And you know what? The Twitter files came out, and that's good. And you know what? I hear a lot of reports that the exploitation of children on Twitter has gone backwards 
as in it was running rampant before Elon Musk bought the platform. And then all of a sudden he takes over and it's a top priority and things are getting done like they weren't before. It's crazy when you stop spending all of your time trying to censor conservatives, how much free time you have to go after pedophiles and slavers. Amazing. Crazy. Who'd have thought? And so I look at that and I say, you know what? It's not 100% of the way there. And I might have some objections. And I do. Elon Musk, if you ever listen to this podcast episode, I love you. I find you entertaining very much so. I pray for you. I think you've done a great, glorious thing. I think you've done a number of things that have been very beneficial. I think you're brilliant. I think you're very funny, actually. I would love to sit down for a beer with you sometime. I don't approve of all of your life choices. I don't approve of all of your life choices because I read in God's word that some of the things that you're doing are not so good. And for your sake, I would say, I don't think all of these things are so good. But you know what? I'm still thankful that you bought Twitter and you've been trying to fix up the place. You know, here's the thing, right? And this is the last thought. And then I got to run. And this episode has gone a little on the long side. But what's wrong with corporate America today? It's a big subject. You got to be fair to me. Cut me some slack, please. It's a big subject. Here's the thing. Growing up, I never once, not in my whole life, not my whole life long, however much money I've made, not once have I ever lived in a new house. Not once. Always the houses that we lived in growing up and since Lauren and I have been married. Maybe this changes by God's grace at some point, but always we've lived in fixer-uppers. And they're fixer-uppers when we move in and we fix them up. And then right about the time that we've got them actually pretty comfortable, it seems like that's when we sell them and we move for other reasons. And we're on to another fixer-upper. And you know what that's taught me? Now, I'm not trying to complain. I'm not trying to grumble. What that, what that has taught me, what that has taught me, ladies and gentlemen, is you don't come into a fixer-upper situation and snap your fingers and it's all perfect all of a sudden. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. But what do you do, right? Whether you're talking about an individual home, you're talking about a job situation, you're talking about a relationship, you're talking about the condition of a city or a state or a country or a generation, you say, you know what? There's a lot that needs to be done here. And you got to start somewhere. And do we want to just light a match and build completely from scratch, from the bottom up, from the ground up? Do we want to leave it the way that it is and just see how long it lasts without any maintenance, without any care, without any trying to fix it? Yeah, maybe we've got five years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is that what we do? Or if we have children like I have children, if we have a wife like I have a wife, we have loved ones that we genuinely care about, if we have a God that we genuinely want to serve and honor with our lives, do we say, you know what? I can't fix it all today, but I'm going to start here. I can fix this right now. I've got the parts. I've got the know-how. I've got the time. I've got the energy. I have the interest. I'm going to fix it. And if I fix this little piece, it's that much better than it was before. And you know what? If more and more Christians do that, then what we will find is Christians are seen as what Jesus called us, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That's not pretentious on our part. If Jesus called us that, well, then it's the most Christian thing we could possibly do to embrace it, lean into it, live it out. We're supposed to be 
the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to aspire to live quiet lives working with our hands, minding our own affairs. That doesn't mean that it's always possible to, strictly speaking, only pay attention to what is your business, finger quotes. You can't see them, but they're there. I'm making finger quotes. So I look at all these situations, and if I can just sum it up, I read Numbers 14, and then I think about all of these current events items, and I think to myself, you know what? If I'm in any one of these situations, if I'm in all of them, I want to be more like Joshua and Caleb, because I think Joshua and Caleb, in the context of Numbers 14, were being more like Christ than most of the leadership that we have in most of the institutions in the United States of America in the year of our Lord, 2023. And if you agree, if you agree with me in that, then I think we've got work to do. And I don't think we have to give up. I don't think we have to throw in the towel. I don't think it has to be an all or nothing. I think what we do is we say, you know what, let's start somewhere, right? Maybe we can't fix everything overnight, just a snap of the fingers, ha ha, or else, oh, they must not have really meant it. Hmm. No, 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 no. Doesn't work that way. Never has, doesn't for anybody. Hasn't ever. Nope, 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 nope. Enough. Stop it. Stop it. We roll up our sleeves and we get to work on what we can do something about. So you've got a giant hole in the wall. And then downstairs, you've got a patch of torn up tile on the floor. And then you've got a toilet that's leaking. And it's just a little bit of a drip, but it's, you know, it's not great, right? It could be better. Let's suppose you've got an outlet that's got a broken cover for it. You know, none of those are big, huge jobs, or at least shouldn't be. But you might look at all of them in the course of an afternoon and say, I don't have time to do all this today. And you know what? Here's the great thing. You don't have to have time to do all of that today. You could just pick one of those things that you have time to do today or pick one of those things that you have time to do something about You know, like, let's say you get to the outlet cover and you say, well, I don't even have an outlet cover. It would take me 30 minutes, 45 minutes to run to the hardware store and back to get that outlet cover. And all I've got is, all I've got is an hour. You know what? Hey, why don't you just run over, get the outlet cover, bring it back. And the next time you've got half an hour, it doesn't take that to put the thing on. The next time you've got half an hour, put it someplace where you're going to see it. And then say, you know what? I'm going to put that on there today. And if you start with that kind of stuff, if you start with those kinds of things in every sphere where you have some kind of sway, that is, I believe, the fulfillment of what Paul was talking about in Thessalonians when he said, we should aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, minding our own affairs. That is your affair. If you find one at work, well, do it there too. If you find one at the town hall when you stop in to renew your registration on the vehicle or whatever, Do the equivalent thing wherever you're at, in whatever sphere where you have some business to do. If we had more of that motivated by our wanting to honor Christ Jesus our Lord, if we had more of that motivated by our wanting to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then I think at a bare minimum, we would have a lot more peace. Not that it would change everything, because what... (laughs) Here's... Another important lesson from the story from Numbers 14. It's not as though Caleb and Joshua testifying to the truth in that context meant that they went right in, right? They're like, hey, let's go now. Let's go now. Come on, let's go. 
the Lord can give us land into our hands. They say that, and then what happens? They go right in, right? No. 40 years. 40 years of living in the midst of a people who were so angry with them that they were ready to stone them. Think about how awful and ugly and lonely that would be. I'll bet you Joshua and Caleb mostly just hung out with each other. Their families mostly just hung out with one another's families. Like, I would bet you. I could be wrong, but that seems plausible. Like, they probably started eyeing everybody else with a little bit more suspicion moving forward. Like, "Mm, no, I don't know if I want to come to your barbecue on Saturday night. I don't know if I do. I think we're busy hanging out with Joshua, son of Nun, and his family. But what did they have? What did these two men have for the next four decades of wandering in the desert until that whole generation died, fell dead in the desert? What did these two men have? They had a story that they could tell themselves in the night and believe that they did the right thing, they said what they were supposed to say, they testified to the truth, they did the good thing, they said the truth thing, and God had promised to them that they would see the fruition of his promise to bring this people into the promised land. And you know what? If that's what the Lord has for us, and that's what it is, 40 years of wandering in the desert, watching all of our generation fall, leave that to God. Just let us be found faithful. That's all I would say. But like I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.